All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14 this morning, looking at verses 32 through 42. That is Mark 14, 32 through 42. And this morning we come to the account of our Lord praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, now, this passage is a very famous one in the Passion narrative of our, of our Lord. Um, here we will read the famous prayer of Jesus. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This passage is full of the glory of Christ. Now, when I read this text, I, I see two main themes emerge. Uh, first, uh, the necessity of, of watching and praying so that disciples, that is us, don't fall into temptation. Right, Being watchful of ourselves and praying, seeking help from God so that we don't fall into sin. I see that in these verses. The other theme that I see, though, is the clear one, the submission of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, I mention these two themes because I think that I covered the first one, at least in part, last Lord's Day, as we considered the arrogance and pride of the disciples in the face of temptation. Um, and to be honest, the, the theme of watching and praying in our text this morning is a secondary theme. So in light of the fact that I kind of covered it last week and it's the secondary theme, uh, I'm going to be focusing on the main theme this morning, and that is the submission of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Our Lord is truly God and truly man, right? Bear with me. You need to remember this for this sermon. Our Lord is truly God and truly man. He is one person, but has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And those natures, as our confession says, though united in the one person, are distinct from one another. They're not divided, but they are distinct. And each nature does that which is proper for it to do at all times. Uh, this is the great mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, God, became a man without ever ceasing to be God in any way and without making his human nature divine. And I say all of that to remind you that our Lord Jesus Christ is truly human. We're bad about this. Uh, American Christians often tend to sacrifice the humanity of Christ for the sake of his deity. And the true humanity of Christ makes a lot of us uncomfortable. But we need to remember that he is human in every single way that we are. With a human will, a human soul, human emotions... He is human just like we are, except he is without sin. And his true and full humanity is on display very clearly in our text this morning. It's on display in such a way that will make some of us, I would imagine, maybe a little bit uncomfortable. And I say that because we are going to see Jesus be terrified. He is going to be full of fear and trembling. And we are going to see him cry out to God in prayer as the perfect man. And we are going to see him as man submit his human will to God. And he will do so perfectly, sweetly, and with the full desire to do so. Hear this. Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord. He's the one that Isaiah spoke of. He is the perfect man. He is the last Adam that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15. And his perfect but true humanity is plain for us to see and marvel at this morning in this passage. In our text, we will be walking on sacred ground. 
We're going to get something of a front row seat to the agony of the soul of our Lord before his crucifixion. And I'm going to keep it real with you. We will never fully understand or appreciate his suffering, especially the suffering of his soul. But I hope that we can get something of a glimpse of what he has suffered for us and for our salvation. And seeing, may God grant us to grow in our love for the Savior servant who submitted himself to God and gave himself up for us. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you now and we humbly ask for you to bless the preaching of your word. Bless the preacher as he speaks and bless the hearers as they hear. By your spirit, speak to each of us from your word this morning and grant us a glimpse of your son in his suffering and humiliation on our behalf. Let us see his humble submission as the perfect man so that we might praise him, rejoice in his perfect work, be glad in our salvation, and walk in the same manner that he walked. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. Instruct us and show us just something of your glory as we sit under the ministry of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage begins by telling us that Jesus took his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. The parallel in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine says that this was a place that Jesus and his disciples went to often. Um, Gethsemane is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It's an olive grove, um, and it's a garden. Right? Quite possibly, it was a private garden that would have been fenced in and would have provided a private place for our Lord to teach his disciples and to pray. That seems fairly likely. So they go to this private garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And as Jesus and the eleven are there, remember Judas is not here, he's went out to betray the Lord. As Jesus and the eleven are there, Jesus instructs eight of them. He says, sit here while I pray. And he probably left them near the entrance of the garden. But then he takes three of them, 
Peter, James, and John. That's his inner circles, circle of disciples. And he takes these three further into the garden so that they would be close to him while he prayed. Just real quick, I, normally Jesus wants to be completely alone when he prays. He wants them to hear. Uh, I think it's Luke's gospel says he goes a stone's throw away from them. It's 40 or 50 feet. And the author of Hebrews says he didn't pray quietly. In Hebrews 5, it says he cried out to God. He cried out to God. He wanted them to hear him pray. Bear that in mind. He, he wants us to, to get a front row seat to his prayer as we read this, uh, read the text this morning. But he takes the three with him, and for, from what he says later, he expected them to watch and pray. Not for himself, but he wanted them to pray for themselves, that they might remain faithful in light of what was about to take place in his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And Jesus has come to pray himself. He wanted to spend his final hours before his death in prayer. Let that be just a quick rebuke to so many of us who are so slow to go to prayer. What would you do with the last few hours of your life? He says, I want to be alone so that I can pray. There's something there for us to consider. But he was seeking help from God for the task ahead. And he was in the fight of his life. This is the moment of truth for Jesus in his earthly ministry. Everything hinges on these moments in Gethsemane. And I say that because in these final hours, our Lord will have to submit his human will to God in order to go to the cross. Yes, he has prophesied that he will go to the cross, that he will die, and that he will be raised. He has said that he has come into the world to do the will of his Father, and he has perfectly done so his entire life. I am not trying to cast a, a hint of a shadow upon any of that, but now comes the big moment. His death is on the horizon. It is just hours away. And so one final time, he must submit himself to the will of God so that he might die and bring about salvation for God's people. Everything hinges on this moment. It's one thing to say something is going to happen and you're going to do something, but it's another thing when the moment comes that you must do it. He must submit himself, and this is hard on him. Verse 33 says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, we forget this often. His suffering begins here. His suffering does not begin with his first round of beatings. His suffering begins in Gethsemane. Not physical suffering, but his anguish of soul begins in Gethsemane. The word here for very sorrowful expresses a deep emotional distress. Uh, one commentator I was reading rendered it, my soul is burdened with grief. I think that's good. That's a good way of putting it. My soul is burdened with grief. He is shaken at the thought of what is to come. He is full of fear. Hear that. The Jesus who stares down demon-possessed men and says, come out of him, is terrified in this moment. Full of sorrow. Full of grief. And he is so full of anguish and fear that... He says it threatens to kill him right there in Gethsemane. I'm sorrowful even to death. Now, why is he so upset? Why is Jesus so afraid? Why is he distressed in his soul? Why is he so burdened in his heart? 
Let me, let, me, let me set this up for you a little bit. He has been on the march to Jerusalem for quite some time now. He's been prophesying his death for quite a while, multiple times, right? explicitly and implicitly. So why now that the time has come for his death, why now is he so afraid? I was reading one, one commentator said this. I thought this was, this was good to think through. Other men in history have faced their deaths with much less fear. It's just true. Other men in history have faced their deaths with much less fear. Some, especially considering, consider some of the Christian martyrs. Some have even greeted death as a welcome friend with, with, with full composure and peace in their heart, not fearing what was to come. So why then is the perfect man, why is Jesus so afraid? More than that, he knows that he will be raised from the dead in three days. Why is he afraid? The answer is this. He's afraid because he knows that it is more than death that he is about to face. He knows that something worse than mockery and hatred awaits him tomorrow. He knows that something worse than being torn apart by whips and thorns and fists awaits him tomorrow. He knows that something worse than being stripped naked and nailed to a tree awaits him tomorrow. Jesus wasn't afraid of death, even the horrible death of crucifixion. Or at least, I, I don't want to downplay his humanity. All human beings are, would be afraid of a painful death, but that was not the greatest fear that he had. He knows that tomorrow morning he will face down the wrath of an almighty God. He knows that the unmitigated, white-hot wrath of a holy, sin-hating, justice-serving, avenging God waits for him. And he must bear the hatred and wrath of God for sin. And he is overwhelmed with grief and fear at the thought of what is to come. He's horrified of what he will have to endure for us. Can you imagine, just for a moment, can you imagine knowing that this awaits you in just a few hours? If you knew that before midnight tonight, you would have to face down the wrath of God. The feeling of hopelessness and loneliness and despair would be almost too much to bear. Jesus knows he's about to become God forsaken in a very real way. And hear me, hear me. I, maybe if you're sitting there as I did in my study, well, I understand that as a concept. No, no, you don't. Because listen, none of us believe the way that we should. Our belief is always mixed with unbelief because we're sinful. He is the perfect man who believes what the Bible says more than anyone ever. He has perfect faith. What does that mean? He understood more than any of us what he was about to face. When the scriptures speak of God being terrifying in his wrath and judgment, he believed it to the full and with better understanding and faith than we do. Jesus had and has the closest relationship to God that any man has ever had. He knows him. And so he really knew what was coming. We cannot even begin to imagine how he felt in his soul. And consider this. Me and Pastor Stephen talked about this. This is actually an expression of the holiness and godliness of Jesus Christ. It was godly and pious for him to be afraid. Why? Because he feared God. Because he feared God. If he would have just waltzed 
to the cross like it was no big deal, it would have seriously called into question his holiness, wouldn't it? If he would have just casually went to his cross, it would have showed that he did not take God seriously and that he had no fear of God. But he is the perfect man, and so he perfectly fears the Lord. He is afraid and distressed almost to the point of being killed under the weight of it all because he is so pious, because he is so godly. And a brief note here, this is the very thing that wicked men and women do not do. They do not fear God at all. That's what the Apostle Paul says. They, they have no fear of God before their eyes, Romans 3. You know, occasionally I'll meet someone who thinks that Christianity is true, but doesn't follow Christ, right? Like we, we, we see that in our rural uh, outskirts of the Bible Belt area. Someone thinks Christianity is the true religion, believes the triune God of Scripture is God, but doesn't follow Jesus. And they'll say things to me like, you know, I, I know I'll go to hell if I die, but there is no but. Right? Like, and I say this stuff to them occasionally, and it almost gets me in trouble. They can't actually, in their heart to the core, truly believe that they will suffer the full and eternal wrath of God if they die in their current state and still continue to function normally. They don't believe it. They don't believe it. Or, or at least they don't understand what they're saying. Uh, on a personal note, this is one of the reasons why I became an atheist for a season. I believed the Christian religion was true, but I wasn't going to follow Christ anymore, and I could not live that way. So then I lied to myself a whole bunch and said, well, then God doesn't exist. Because you can't actually think you're going to go to hell and really believe it and function. You can't do it. Sinners don't fear God. Sinners don't fear his holy justice or his righteous wrath. That's the problem of man. And, and so they sin as if God will do nothing. They, they think of their coming death with no true fear of the damnation that awaits them. And they spend their lives never looking for escape from damnation that is only found through faith in Jesus Christ. They have no fear of God. But see, in this text, Jesus feared the Lord. In his humanity, he feared God because he is the godliest of all men. Back to our text. He says he's sorrowful unto death. I just wanted to point this out to you before we move on. At this verse, some people will say, that's not possible. It's not, it's not possible to be sorrowful unto death. It's not possible to be so full of anguish in your soul that it kills you. So that this must be made up. That's an exaggeration. If you think that, you're a fool. Because such people are not considering the horrors that our Lord saw coming for him at the cross. He knew that suffering beyond what no man had ever endured or would ever endure again were about to come upon him. We know nothing of the anguish of soul that he endured. And we can never know it either, for no one has ever suffered as he suffered. And praise God, we who trust in Christ will never know it because he endured it for us. But now we come to his prayer in verses 35 and 36. And really, we're going to camp out here for the rest of the sermon. And really, in these two verses, this is a summary of his prayer. He, he prayed for hours, no doubt, but this is the Holy Spirit-inspired summary of his prayer that Mark gives us. Verse 35, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So he goes a little farther away from Peter, James, and John and begins to pray. Mark includes the fact that Christ fell on the ground. I think another parallel account says he knelt down. So I think what we see here is that he knelt down and then eventually through his prayer lays himself on the ground. Under the weight of what was to come, he falls and he prays. He's staggering under the weight of it all. He's crying out to God sincerely. And Mark says that Jesus prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. If it were possible, the hour might pass. And then he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I think that there's maybe a difficulty that we need to try to understand here. I don't know if you can see, if you can see it or not. If it were possible, and all things are possible. Now, let me pose the difficulty as a question. And I think it's going to lead us to exalt Christ in his prayer. If God can do anything as Jesus prayed, why does Mark also record that Jesus prayed if it were possible, the hour might pass from him? How are we supposed to understand this? I would summarize it this way, and I'll expound on it. If there was any way that God's will could be done and sinners be saved and the decree of God come to pass that did not require his death, Jesus asks for that to happen instead. Jesus knows that God is able to do anything considered by itself on its own in isolation from everything else. God is able to do anything. Why? Because God is almighty. He has all power in and of himself. But Jesus is not a superficial theologian. right? He is the greatest theologian. He is deep. So he knows that there are some things that God cannot do. Because it would be improper, illogical, or go against his nature as God. Some examples of this. Uh, First, God cannot lie. Why? Because he's holy. And he will not violate his holy nature. Furthermore, he is the truth. Come, Come this evening. We're going through the Baptist Catechism this evening. You'll see me expound on these things. A second, God cannot be wrong about the future. Why? Because he's omniscient. He knows all. Third, God cannot go against what he has sovereignly decreed will come to pass. Why? Because he is wisdom itself. To go against what he decreed means that he just came up with a better idea, which would mean he did not have all wisdom in himself. Fourth, God cannot make a squared circle because that is contradictory and nonsensical. I think you get the idea. There are things that God can't do because they either are against his will, against his nature, or are nonsensical. Jesus knows this when he prays. He's a deep theologian. I think this all means that the will of God for Christ to go to the cross was not going to change. God could have saved humanity any way that he pleased. He could have. He could have. Considered as an abstract thing by itself, God could have saved humanity any way he pleased. But the cross of Christ was the decree of God. And God had had it recorded in Scripture. What does that mean? It was promised by God to his people. And God will not be wrong about the future. And he will not lie to his people. And he will not violate his holy will. I'm I'm speaking personally here. I personally think that Jesus knew what the answer was going to be to his prayer. I think he knew or at least would have been pretty sure that there was no other way. And I say that because if I could deduce that from the Old Testament scriptures, I think the greatest theologian that's ever... He is praying. Do you think he's an atheist? Of course he's praying to God. 
Right, so real quick, as a man, he is praying. He does not pray as God. And as a man, he is not omniscient. Bear with me here. This is actually, I think, important to our understanding of this prayer. As a man, he is not omniscient. He is omniscient as God, but not as man. You know, sometimes Jesus has divine information and divine knowledge that he should not know as a human. That's because the Spirit of God has communicated divine knowledge from his divine nature to his human nature, just like God does with prophets. Right? This is why he's, he's our great prophet, is he not? Right? So divine information can be communicated to his human nature just like it is communicated to all other human beings that God is pleased to do that with. But that does not mean his human nature is omniscient. He is a man. So maybe in light of that, we should understand his prayer like this. And you're, you're free to disagree with me, but I think this is the best way to understand it. Father, maybe I've missed something. Maybe I've missed something. I am a man, and I do not know all things. And I know you can do anything because you are almighty God. So if I've missed something, and there is any other way, please do that instead. But if not, I submit to your will. Our Lord is expressing a desire to avoid the wrath of God, if that is at all possible, while God still accomplishes his holy will. And again, there is godly fear in this prayer. Please hear me. Jesus is not, in an absolute, unqualified sense, saying, I don't want to do this. That would be sin. That would actually be rebellious. If in an unqualified way he says, I don't want to. Right? That would be like your child who says that to you whenever you give them a command. And I don't want to. That's rebellion. Rather, his motive is the fear of God. And because he fears God and loves God, notice that his prayer contains qualifications. If it were possible that this hour might pass from him. What's the other qualification? Yet not as I will, but as you will. He is willfully submitting to die if God so wills it of him. This is actually an incredibly pious prayer. And does not even remotely hint at any rebelliousness in Christ or opposition to the will of God. This is pure and perfect godliness on display in the midst of fear and severe suffering. This is true godliness. But in his prayer, Jesus asks that the cup might pass from him. That it would be removed from him. So we're going to consider now, for most of our time left in this sermon, the cup the cup and what was in it in, in this context of not wanting the cup sometimes there's a cup of gladness in the scriptures but in this context in the context of, of saying i don't want the cup we see that it's not positive it's something to be feared and this is fitting considering what the old testament says in many places about cups isaiah 51 17 says Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Psalm 75, 8, this is one that always sticks out in my mind. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. God has a cup. And it is full of his fury. It is full of his wrath against sin and sinners. 
please hear me, you don't want this cup. You don't want a sip of this cup. To summarize the contents of this cup with one word, I would say this. Horror. Total, complete, utter horror. But let's be more specific. What is in this cup for Christ specifically? What was in it that made him recoil at the thought of having to drink it? First, sin was in the cup. Sin. Becoming sin was in the cup. He was made sin, Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians. We don't often consider this because it's, it's a foreign concept to us as sinners. Right? The shock of sin and to be associated with sin to the pure and spotless Son of God would have been horrible for him to endure. He who had never sinned was about to take on the sins of all of his people, a whole world of sin, and have it credited to his account. Credited as if it truly is his now. It's his now. He who has no fellowship with sin, who is perfectly pure, who has never sinned, was about to become sin. This would have been awful. More than we can imagine. And I say more than we can imagine because we are so sinful that we don't even realize how sinful we are. Right? Sinning is part of who we are. Consider this. This is not an original thought to me. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. This is part of who we are. We were born in sin. We sin daily. Well, I'm not making excuses for it, but this is part of what we are. We're like fish that don't know what wet is. Fish don't know that they're wet because they've only always been in water. We're so sinful that we don't even recognize how sinful we actually are. And furthermore, how awful it is to be a sinner. You've been one your whole life. You don't know how awful, I don't know how awful it really is to have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, I violate the will of God. We don't, we don't recognize how bad it is, but Jesus, who never even had the internal desire or inclination to sin, was about to take on a world of sin and be numbered among the transgressors, as Isaiah says. A very good preacher named Paul Washer once put it this way. This is his illustration. Imagine a saintly old woman doing ministry to prostitutes. Imagine it. Spotless, clean reputation amongst God's people. She's been walking with Christ faithfully for 40 years. A saintly old woman doing ministry in the streets to prostitutes. She's among them in the street, talking with them, preaching Christ to them, praying for them, trying to help them. And then the cops come and start arresting women for prostitution. And the old women, woman gets arrested and put in jail by mistake and charged with prostitution. Imagine how scandalized this old saint would be. Her reputation is now destroyed. She's now been numbered among whores. You can imagine the shock to her. You can imagine her weeping in the cell. She is clean, but she has now been charged with great wickedness. That is not actually hers. Brothers and sisters, that is nothing. That is nothing compared to what the Son of God endured internally when he was made sin for us. 
He who hates sin and has nothing to do with it and has no fellowship with the wicked was to become sin for us. And the thought brought horrible, horrible distress to his soul. Second, guilt for sin was in the cup. Not just sin as an abstract, but its guilt was in the cup. He would feel the weight of guilt for sins that were not his because they were going to be accounted to him. Now, what am I talking about? The guilt for sin. We all know, we all know the horrible, sickening, disgusted feeling you have after you've committed sin. Especially grievous sin. Think of the worst thing that you've done and how that still bothers you sometimes. You know, that, that, that feeling of, of awfulness after you have committed this great, grievous sin, that's guilt. a thought for you, we're often hardened to what we would call lesser sin. Right? Like you tell like a, a, a white lie, so to speak, and you don't really feel that bad for it. Right? Or as we were talking this morning in men's Sunday school class, you run through a stop sign because no one's around, you don't really feel bad for it. We would call those things like lesser sins. No sin is lesser to the one who does not know sin. The weight of guilt that you feel for your most grievous sin, he would have felt for the most minor sin. He knows no sin. And he was about to take on the guilt of every sin that every one of his people would ever commit. Our guilt would become his guilt. Oh, please hear me. Consider with me. Consider with me the guilt of child molestation and what that would make a man feel internally. He bore that guilt. He would feel the guilt of drug and alcohol abuse, the guilt of adultery, the guilt of lying and deceiving, the guilt of laziness and procrastination, the guilt of idolatry, the guilt of hatred and murder, the guilt of jealousy, the guilt of the pornography user, the guilt of the man who beats his wife, the guilt of the wife who hates and belittles her husband, the guilt of fornication, the guilt of stealing, the guilt of rape. Think of any sin that a man can be forgiven for and Christ was going to feel the guilt of that sin. The one who had never felt guilt in his entire life. Imagine going your whole life. You've never felt guilty for anything because you've never done anything wrong. And now in a moment, you are about to feel the weight of all the guilt of all the elect for all time. If God were to lay on us all at once the guilt of just our sins that we have committed or will commit in this life, I believe it would kill us. If he said, here's all of it at once. And yet here our state, Savior stands with the guilt of all who would ever believe upon him. Not with the guilt of one man, not for 1,000 men, not for 100 million men, but for the elect in all ages. He bore, here's a positive text that I want you to view negatively for a moment. He bore uh, the guilt of what Revelation 7, 9 calls a great multitude that no one could number. He bore sin and guilt in his soul for sinners. Third, God-forsakenness was in this cup. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have never experienced this. God-forsakenness. Even at our worst, even under the worst discipline or punishment from God, His common grace was still ours as His creatures, was it not? 
We've never been God forsaken, but not for Christ. It was no metaphor when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was God forsaken. Not in his divine nature, right? That language of, and the Son of God was ripped from the Trinity, that's blasphemy, that did not happen. But the human Christ was ripped away from fellowship with God in every single way at the cross. He knew this was coming for him. He would be abandoned by God. He would be turned over to strict, unbending, unyielding divine justice. Consider this. He knows in a few hours' time God will be merciless to him. Maybe you've never considered it in that language. At the cross, God was merciless to Jesus. Why? Because he had forsaken him. The one who had had perfect fellowship with God would be forsaken by God because God will have no fellowship with sin and he was to become sin. And fourth, and most broadly speaking, the wrath of God was in the cup. The hatred of God was in the cup. The full penalty and punishment reserved for the wicked was in the cup. Our Lord would suffer the full weight of the wrath of God that his people deserve for their sins. As the psalmist says, God has a cup that the wicked must drink down to the dregs. And Jesus will have to drain that cup on behalf of his people. And he must drink every last drop of it or not one of them will be saved. He must exhaust the wrath of God. In his body and soul, he will make satisfaction to God on behalf of sinners. Brothers and sisters, I, as I'm sitting in my study writing this sermon, I'm like, I don't know what to say. Words will not suffice at this point. They cannot. For who among us can imagine the terrors of God and his fury? You know, even the language of hell in scripture is metaphorical. It is. I'm not downplaying how awful it is. Metaphors always point to something greater than the metaphor. My wife is a rose. Oh, she's much more beautiful than a rose. My wife is greater than a rose. Metaphors always point to something worse. Even the language of the wrath of God is metaphorical in Scripture. Why? Because we can't think of anything worse than how the Scriptures describe God and His fury. The mountains flee before Him. He dries up the oceans with the breath of His nostrils. He makes the mountains to tremble and smoke. We have no language for this. But our Lord would not imagine it. He would endure it. He would offer himself as a substitute and suffer in place of the wicked. And he would take that cup and drink it down to the dregs. He would in some sense that we cannot fully understand, but that the word of God does declare to us, our Lord would experience hell at the cross. Again, we cannot imagine the agony of soul that this caused our Lord. T to know that this, all of this lies ahead for him, would be more than we could bear. In light of all of this, one commentator wrote, Gazing into the cup, Jesus saw hell opened before him, and he staggered. Surely we can begin to somewhat understand why, in his human nature, he cried out to God for another way for sinners to be saved. Remove this cup from me. 
But that's not all that he prayed, is it? See here the submission of the servant. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want you to do. This is not false piety from him. This is true piety. Oh God, I want to be spared, but not at the expense of your will. Please do what what you want to do. True submission, not false submission that we so often say, God, give me a child if it be your will, but really I want you to do my will. No, it wasn't false piety. It wasn't false submission like that. It was, God, do what is best here. I submit. This is perfect and total submission. This This is the glory of the incarnate Son of God. And this reminds us of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself to death. Why? Because it was the will of God. Let me put it to you this way. The servant of the Lord did the will of the Lord, even though it cost him everything. Even though it cost him, I would say, more than everything if that's possible. All throughout his life, Jesus had said things like, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And for for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Brothers and sisters, our Lord was not wasting air when he said those things. He meant them. And so in the final moments before his arrest, he submits one final time to the will of his father. And with the words, yet not what I will, but what you will, our salvation was secured once and for all. Because with those words, he submitted himself to the will of God for the cross. See the gospel in those words. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Those words are our salvation. What holiness and strength and godliness this shows from the perfect man. Consider the true temptation that he must have endured that night. Tempted to run. Would you not be? The wrath of God is coming for you tomorrow. I would want out. Tempted to run. Tempted to not go to the cross. Tempted to spare himself. Really all of this is temptation to disobey the will of God. It was temptation to not be true to God. But our Lord did not give in to temptation, just as he did in the wilderness when tempted by the devil. He overcame. He overcame then and he overcame in Gethsemane. He did not even desire to be unfaithful. He overcame. He is the perfect servant of the Lord. He is everything that we are not. Perfectly submissive. Please hear me. He conquered temptation and chose the cup. And he chose it for you. He chose it for us. As Charles Spurgeon said, with Christ's perfect resignation, there was also his strongest resolve. He had undertaken the work of his people's redemption and he would go through with it until he could triumphantly say from the cross, it is finished. Amen. Now before we end our time together, there's something else I want to point out to you. I want you to see some big picture things in scripture from this text. The story of redemption can in one sense be considered as the story of two gardens. The Garden of Eden 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. Please hear me. It is not a coincidence of scripture or history that the first Adam was in a garden and the last Adam was also in a garden. If you read your Bible like that, you're reading it like a worldling. These things are not on accident. We are supposed to see the parallels between Adam, our first father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And what do we see? In the Garden of Eden, Adam did not submit to the will of God, but instead chose to eat the forbidden fruit and sin against the Lord. But the last Adam, our Lord Jesus, submitted perfectly to the will of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first Adam, by his disobedience, plunged the world into sin, death, and damnation. But the last Adam, by his obedience, worked salvation and life for all who will believe. The first Adam broke the covenant of works and damned all of humanity. But the last Adam kept the covenant of redemption and saved all of the elect of God. The Bible is a story of two gardens, two covenants, and two men. It's a story of failure and victory, sin and salvation, death and life. For as Paul tells us, in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. Adam failed to obey, but Christ obeyed and is victorious. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam said, not your will, but mine be done. But praise God, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam said, not my will, but yours be done. And the difference between the two is the difference between damnation and salvation. Christ Jesus did what we could not. He did what Adam did not. He is everything that we are not, but he is everything that we need. He is our righteousness. He is our atonement. He is our salvation. He is our life. He is our everything. See these things and be amazed. See here in Gethsemane the love of God for sinners. See here the justice of God against sin. See here the fearful wrath of God against the unbelieving. See here the example of obedience and submission to God that we are to imitate. And see here the Savior of sinners, the suffering servant, the obedient son, the last Adam, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And see him and look to him and live. Because by his submission and by his suffering we are saved. May God grant us all to behold the majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus. That your word shows us the, the man, the God-man who saved us. Lord, grant that we would glory in him all the more and rejoice in his work and rejoice in his humility and rejoice in his submission and stand amazed that we should be recipients and gain from his suffering on our behalf. We thank you for him. And we pray that you would help us to love him more. We pray this in his name. Amen.